Hello, and welcome to the Artificial Podcast, with your host Nick Myers. Artificial Intelligence. Voice Recognition. Machine Learning. Robotic. Actionable Analytics. It is Nick's goal to help everyone understand how AI and voice technology are reshaping our lives both personally and within organizations. Your glimpse into the growing world of AI and voice first starts now. Nick Myers. Nick Myers. Nick Myers. Nick Myers. Welcome to the Artificial Podcast. My name is Nick Myers, and I am here to help break down topics in emerging technology, artificial intelligence, and voice assistant tech to help everyone understand how these technologies are impacting our lives both personally and within our organizations. The Artificial Podcast is brought to you by Red Fox AI. Red Fox AI helps give brands a voice by leveraging the power of AI and voice assistant technologies like Alexa and Google Assistant. If you or your organization is interested in sponsoring an episode, please send an email to the artificial podcast at redfox-ai.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere that you stream podcast episodes. You can also follow the artificial podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube by searching for the artificial podcast. You can join our brand new Facebook group exclusively for listeners of the show, where you can meet other artificial podcasters from around the world who are interested in emerging technology just like you. A link to our Facebook group has been included in the episode notes. Thank you for listening, and now a quick word from our sponsors before we jump into this week's episode. Hey, Brett. What's up, Nick? You know, on the Artificial Podcast, we talk a lot about the future of conversational AI and voice assistant technologies, right? So you mean basically in every episode we do? All right, wise guy. But seriously, think about it. I don't think we truly realize how quickly voice assistants like Alexa, Google Assistant, Siri, Cortana, and Bixby, just to name a few, have embedded themselves in our daily lives. I mean, the analysts are predicting that in a little more than three years, there will likely be 8 billion, yes, billion voice assistant users connected to nearly 2 billion global websites, more than 40 billion connected devices. Okay, yeah, that's a lot. Uh, but what do you... What are you trying to get here, basically? Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that for numbers like these to truly become a reality, a few things need to happen. Yeah, like more technology innovations? Well, yes, but I'm thinking of something more, something even more important. We need to have trust. Trust between the users and the technology itself. Okay, yeah, I'll be honest. Sometimes I daydream about these voice assistants getting smart enough to rise up and take over like Skynet, you know, from Terminator. Well... I mean, yeah, sure, that could happen, I suppose, but I'm talking about things like trustworthy privacy and trustworthy accessibility and trust that if you're a business, you have full rights to your name and your brand. Have you heard about the Open Voice Network? No, I haven't. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about them? I would love to, Brett. Well, in a nutshell, the Open Voice Network is a nonprofit directed fund of the Linux Foundation that is dedicated to making voice assistants worthy of user trust. Members of the Open Voice Network include conversational AI designers, strategists, developers, and other industry professionals from all around the world who are dedicated to paving the way for a future where voice can be trusted and benefits everyone. I'm proud to say that I've been a member since early this year, and it has truly been one of the best decisions I have made since becoming a voice practitioner. And if you're in the industry, I highly encourage you to check it out and join. Sweet. That sounds cool. Um, so what you're saying is Skynet isn't going to happen? <sighs> oh, Brett. If you are interested in learning more about the Open Voice Network and how you can get involved, visit www.openvoicenetwork.org or send an email to john.stein at openvoicenetwork.org. The Open Voice Network. Voice assistance worthy of user trust. Hey there, Artificial Podcasters. Welcome back to another week and another episode of the Artificial Podcast. Nick Myers here again, and this week I am excited to welcome Pete Dulcamera from the Kimberly Clark Corporation to the Artificial Podcast. 
I had the pleasure of meeting Pete for the first time, actually, a few months ago. There was an event that was sponsored by the Wisconsin Technology Council, and, and Pete and I were able to have a really good chat in that. And then through some future work that I did, getting more involved with Wisconsin Tech Council, we were able to get connected again. And let me just say, Pete is, is working on some incredible things, not only at Kimberly Clark, but some initiatives that he is really trying to take on to, to bridge the racial wealth gap and empower people in underserved communities to, to achieve more in technology. But we'll, we'll get into some of that as we chat. But first things first, let me tell you a bit more about Mr. Pete Delcamera. So Pete Delcamera is the Chief Scientist and Technical Vice President for the Kimberly Clark Corporation. He is responsible for developing technology strategies at the enterprise level, building technical talent globally, and fostering a culture of scientific excellence and value creation. Pete, welcome to the Artificial Podcast. How are you? Hey, great, Nick. Hey, great. It's, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for taking the time. I've been really looking forward to our conversation. Again, just everything that we've kind of been talking about over the last few months, a lot of the initiatives that you're really starting to make some headway on, it sounds like, from what we were just talking about in our pre-chat here. So I'm really excited to dive into some of these things that you're, you're championing, really. Yep, me as well. Awesome. So let's kick things off with what, as I, as I, as I commonly like to do with, with people I bring on the show, what has your journey been like so far? And how did some of your past experience, you know, maybe both professional and personal, lead you to your current role at KCC and ultimately some of the things you're, you're working on, on on the side as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I mean, first and foremost, I'm a husband and father. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have, uh, you know, both my kids are in college and I live here in Nina, Wisconsin with my wife, uh, Gina. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting when my wife became pregnant for our first child in December 1997, I remember sitting down and writing a personal mission statement, which is to help create businesses that improve people's lives and help raise children that live a life fulfilled. And, awesome. and it's incredible how that personal mission, that, that true north has guided me uh, through my career and every major career decision that I've had to make. It has to answer the question, does it help me, you know, create businesses that improve people's lives? And does mm -hmm. it help me raise children that live a life fulfilled? So that, that has really been my guide. You know, I, I always think of the uh, quote by uh, Omar Bradley, which is, we need to navigate by the stars, not by the light of every passing ship. I love that. And I think that's the key is putting those stars in the sky that we're going to navigate by. And so, you know, you know, my career, uh, just real briefly, I'll give you just a short synopsis. I've been with Kimberly Clark for 14 years. The first 12 years as the Vice President of Corporate Research and Engineering, which is the long-term science mm -hmm. and technology arm for the corporation. And uh, the last two years, uh, I was named as the first chief scientist, really in the history of the company. Mm -hmm. And my role really is to discover what's next for Kimberly Clark. And prior to KC, I was with the Dow Chemical Company for 18 years. And then prior to that, I was a professional student for about eight years. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so, yeah, so my, my background is in chemistry and math and physics and did my graduate work in chemical engineering at Oklahoma State University. And then Dow nice. hired me, uh, moved me to Texas where I met my wife. They moved us to Michigan where we had our kids and then I came to Kimberly Clark or we came to Kimberly Clark and where we raised our kids here in Wisconsin. Fantastic. No, I, I really like how you you have that personal mission statement that you've been hanging on to. And, you know, honestly, I think you're the first person I've ever talked to who's actually, you know, who, who encounters has actually done something like that. And, and again, from, you know, all just all the different conversations we've had and you know, and, and being able to work with you on, on a couple different things here, it just seems like you're really holding true to that, which is just fantastic. So that's, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to say other than that's, that's awesome. Well, that That's inspiring, truly well, and inspiring to me. Well, you, you know, Nick, it, it's kind of interesting is I, I have never thought of myself as an employee of Kimberly Clark, and I've never thought of myself as an employee of Dow Chemical. Mm -hmm. Um I, I've always, and it's not that I'm a megalomaniac, right? I, but <laughs> I wake up in the morning thinking Kimberly Clark works for me, right? So I've got this yeah. personal mission statement to help create businesses that improve people's lives, but I don't have the financial or technical wherewithal to pull it off. But Kimberly Clark does. Mm -hmm. 
And so I keep Very thinking to myself, point. how do I use Kimberly Clark to create businesses that improve people's lives? And I'm just fortunate that I work for a company like Kimberly Clark, whose vision is to lead the world in essentials for a better life. And so you got this great overlap of the yeah. Venn diagram of my mission and their mission, you know, and, and I always define stress as doing something that you hate um, <laughs> and, and doing something you love is called passion. You know, and so it's yes. easy to be passionate about working for Kimberly Clark um, or have Kimberly Clark work for me um, because it's achieving both our missions. That's a really, I like that that mindset. Again, something I, I haven't heard too often of, but honestly, I, I think if more people uh, adopted your mindset of instead of them working for somebody else or being employed by somebody and more like the company is working for you because it also aligns with your own mission and vision for your life that I think a lot of people would be happier. I think you and I could probably both agree on that. <laughs> oh yeah. And, and I think that's the real key we need to seek is joy and work. You know, I'm always amazed. We all go through our life, you know, raising families, paying our bills in time, volunteering in our community. And somehow we walk through the doors of a corporation and we're brain dead and need a supervisor and yeah. manager to tell us what to do. Yep. We, we don't need supervision. What we need is leadership. And with that leadership, I think people are intrinsically motivated to do the right thing. I 110% agree. And, and that's something I very strongly identify with as well. And I was also lucky enough at my, my old full-time job prior to transitioning into to my company full-time where that was, that was how the owners of, of the company I work for treated everything very open. They, they very much wanted to empower individual leaders within the company, myself included, allowed us to, to try things, fail and, and learn. And I learned so much from that experience. So I, I agree with you 100% that is definitely something that I, I wish I, I could say that I, I heard more people talk about just just in the general world of work. So it's really fantastic to hear that, you know, that's that's a really big part of 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 your role and, and what you're working towards at Kimberly Clark. So with that in mind, what has it been like overseeing, you know, since you're chief scientist and I would imagine technology plays into that innovation as well. So does it, what has it been overseeing technology innovation and, and trying to anticipate what's coming next, really at one of the world's largest consumer packaged good companies that produces so many different brands that we're all familiar with, like Kleenex, Scott, Huggies, et cetera. What, what has that been like? Yeah, you know, it's it's been really um, exciting to work for Kimberly Clark. You know, you, you know, because sometimes you know you think, well, golly, what, what more can you do with a roll of toilet paper, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, I mean, come on, you know, I can't get too serious about yeah, that. It's just toilet true. paper, right? right? <laughs> I love uh, it. But but you know, um, you know, it's interesting to look at the history of KC. You know, KC started in 1872, right here in Nina, Wisconsin. And for the first 50 years, it was really a paper-based company. Mm -hmm. And in 1914, we hired our first head of research, Ernst Mahler. And he asked this question, which is, what if we could turn a tree into cotton and mm. develop cotton? And from that came Kotex and Kleenex and 50 years of paper-based consumer no products. And, and, and then in the 1960s, you know, the company started, you know, it's that line from the graduate, I got one word for you kid, plastic, right? <laughs> and so, you know, our non-wovens made out of plastics really led Darwin Smith to ask the question, what if we sold all these paper mills that made us successful for the last hundred years and invested that in diapers? What, what, a, what a major change. And so that, from that came, you know, Huggies and pull-ups and Depend and yeah. Poise and another 50 years of really consumer-based products based on non-wovens and superabsorbents and tissue, which brings us up to almost 150 years of Kimberly-Clark. Wow. It, and I think where we are today is Kimberly-Clark is if the movie The Graduate was being made today, I think I'd have one word for you, kid. It's data. Yeah, and, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, in the, in the next 24 hours, one to two billion people on planet Earth will use a Kimberly Clark product. That's crazy. And put every single biological fluid known to man in those products <laughs> and simply throw them away. Yeah. Now, just imagine if you could access that data. Oh my gosh. You know, imagine what you could, do, what you could tell a consumer about their health, about their nutrition, about their sleep, about their well-being. 
Um, and imagine that data coming back to Kimberly Clark so that we could really understand the supply chain and the value chain and yeah. improve our offering. And now imagine being able to use that data and monetize it, not only for Kimberly Clark, but imagine if the consumer could monetize the data that they own that's in those products. Oh, yeah. You know, or, or, or you know, even imagine being able to harvest these biological fluids from our products. You know, the human microbiome, if you could harvest the infant human microbiome from baby diapers, you, you might be able to solve irritable bowel syndrome in adults. Or imagine being able to harvest stem cells from menses mm. and feminine hygiene products to, to be able to cure Alzheimer's and cancer. So when I look at Kimberly Clark today, that's what I look at is just the tremendous amount of data that we have access to through our products, not to make smart products, but right. to make smart consumers, to make smart parents. You know, the, the other thing I would say, Nick, just real quick on Kimberly Clark is, if you look at Kimberly Clark's products, what KC has done historically is develop products that are socially taboo that have quite a bit of stigma associated <laughs> with them, right? I mean, when you're talking yeah. about, you know, yep. going the toilet and, you know, menstruation yeah, and, and yep. light bladder leakage. Diapers and yeah. Diapers, all that stuff, right? It, it, it's, but what, what's really incredible is what I think Casey's real core competency is, is finding places where people have lost control of their life, right? Mm -hmm. when, when a nine-year-old girl enters puberty, she's lost control. When, when mom and, you know, mom and dad come home with their first baby, they've lost control of their life. When somebody is incontinent, they've lost control of their life. If your child is bedwetting, they've lost control of their life. If you have an allergy and your nose is running, you've lost control. Mm. And, and what I see KC has done over and over again is provide products that give people control of their life in areas that are socially taboo or have a lot of stigma associated with it. And that takes a lot of empathy and it takes a lot of design thinking and it takes a really good execution. And, and, and I think that's what KC has done really well. And I'm really proud of what KC has done historically and the foundation that provides us to give people control of their life and other aspects maybe that we haven't pursued yet. That that's really interesting. You say all that, Pete, because again, I think when you think of of some of the to your point, some of the products that Casey produces, you don't think, well, what does that have to do with innovation or what does it have to do with technology? But the way that you just described, really to a T, how people's lives could be improved by the amount of data that truly resides in all of the different products that people use from Casey, whether that be Kleenex or Scott toilet paper, Huggies, or anything. That could be applied to so many different areas to make things better for folks. And that is why I've always loved talking with you because you can really connect the dots with that. And I think especially with a company like KC, where if you're just a, you know, somebody who uses the product that probably never pops into your head. But, you know, I think when you, when you start bringing together the meeting of so many different minds and, and you're able to really start diving into what is it that we're actually doing with these products you know, to help people, but in turn, the data that we're collecting from doing so, you know, that that's really incredible. And one thing that I've always truly admired too about KC, specifically the Kleenex product, Pete, is the fact that the, the Kleenex brand has just become tissue paper for your nose. Like you never hear anybody say, I'm going to go grab, you know, whether it's a Kleenex brand or not, I'm going to go grab, you know, tissue paper from it. No, everybody says Kleenex, whether it is the brand of Kleenex or not, which I have always found fascinating. Yeah, but you know, it, it's there's I I got you know I got to give you a plug here. I mean, there's nothing softer than Kleenex. <laughs> I, I mean, well, that's what I buy. <laughs> you know, there's some technology that we developed a few years ago um and it deemed uh, Kleenex the um the America's softest tissue and you know, there's quite a bit of sophistication that goes into yeah. the surface of a Kleenex tissue to provide, you know, that softness and that strength. But, but, you know, one of the things that's, you know, and I know it's not the conversation today, but just around sustainability, you know, part of the challenge as chief scientists that I've helped lay out is how do we make tree-free paper? Mm. How do we make petroleum-free polymers? Yep. How do we make asset-free manufacturing? How do we provide container-free packaging? And, and those are all things that we're working on as Kimberly-Clark. And we have, you know, there's other, there's other plants that we can use besides trees 
you know, to, to make our tissue. We've looked at everything from algae to sugarcane bagasse wow. to bamboo. I mean, over 30 species of plants that we've looked at. And, and you know, even the petroleum-free, you know, I, I find it amazing that nature spent 62 million years driving hydrocarbons <laughs> deep into our lithosphere. Yeah. And we as humans over the last 150 years have pulled those hydrocarbons up and burned them in our biosphere. Yep. Right? I mean, yep. what, rational crazy, species, right? what rational yep. species would do that? Yep. But, but the answer is right in front of us, which is rather than using hydrocarbons from petroleum, let's use carbohydrates from plants and use the free income of the sun and CO2 and water to create complex carbohydrates that we can use as polymers for our products. So those are some of the things that, um, you know, we work on as Kimberly Clark and I have the, the privilege and honor to help try to drive and by, you know, no means am I doing those things, um, you know, helping to guide those things as best I can. That's fantastic. And, and I truly think we're really starting I could be wrong, but I just get that feeling that we're really on the cusp of this this sustainability initiative and movement just all over the place. I really think the problem of climate change is really starting to hit people at home, of course. And, and again, not to get off on, on that tangent, but you know, trying to draw it back to everything you just talked about in the innovation part of it, because you look at you know, what we've gone through just this year with the fact that they have to start naming hurricanes after Greek you know, Greek letters. Yeah. Um, and the fact that we have wildfires out West that are the worst in history. Same with Australia. Australia was on fire for like two months at the start of the year. So I think it's really starting to hit people at home and they're, they, they, they have no choice, but to be more cognizant of it. Right. So to hear that a company like Kimberly Clark, who, who, you know, has always really worked with paper products and, and plastic is really honing in on the future of sustainability, because I, I really think we're going to see a huge shift over the next 10 years. And I know that's something we'll kind of talk about here in a bit with with what you've been working on. But sure. no, I'm really glad you brought that up. So switching gears a bit, I know when we first had our chat about what we could talk about on the podcast and, and even some different discussions we've been in, you, you told me about this concept of humanity-centric innovation that you've been working on. And, and I just think it's absolutely incredible. And, and again, I, I can't appreciate enough you sent me that slide deck because it made me think so much. But if you can talk a bit about what exactly is humanity-centric innovation um, and, and what, what led you to really develop that concept? Yeah, yeah. No, thank you, Nick. Yeah. You know, I think historically, KC has been a company that's had brand-led innovation. You know, we start with, you know, what's the brand promise? And that really starts to drive our innovation. And we've evolved from brand-led to consumer-led to today, I would say we're a human-centered design company. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, historically, innovations come at what I call the creative collision. And the creative collision is a consumer need coupled with a business model that makes money, coupled with an advantage capability, primarily through science and technology. So it's what's needed, what's possible, and what's required. So what's needed by the consumer what's possible through science and technology and what's required for business success. And if you have all three of those things, that's the creative collision of innovation. And you can actually start with any one of them, but you need all three to have an innovation. So you can start with a need, but if you don't have the technology or the business model, you're not gonna get there. So you need all three. Right. And so what humanity-centric innovation is, is really taking that a step further, which is really asking ourselves, what are the needs of all of humanity? And if we solve those problems for humanity, not only the uh, society benefit, but the individual benefits and the consumer and so forth. And so when I think about humanity-centric innovation, I think the UN SDGs, the UN uh, Sustainability Development Goals really speak well to this. You know, this is things like let's end poverty, let's end hunger, let's achieve gender equality, these type of things. And you might ask yourself, well, how does that relate to Kimberly Clark? <clears throat> but you take something like gender equality, you know, I think the Kotex brand can be that brand that um, helps overcome the stigma of menstruation, mm -hmm. yeah. allows girls to become educated and to empower women as one of the vehicles to achieve gender equality. So when I, when I talk about humanity-centric innovation, 
rather than focusing on the Cotex brand of maybe, you know, um, enabling a woman's progress, it's about being the being the company that helps achieve gender equality as the higher ground that we might want to pursue. Um, you know, another another example is, you know, imagine imagine if every time you bought a box of Kleenex, you were reversing global warming mm. because you knew yep. that Kimberly Clark was using regenerative agriculture to sequester CO2 in the soil of, of the plants that we were growing to make our products. Right. So it, it's those kind of concepts of humanity centric innovation is about taking climate action uh, by coupling uh, that need with a business model. And one of the things I'm advocating is what I call 21st century business models. And we can talk mm-hmm. more about that yep. coupled with exponential technologies um, that can actually accelerate um, the, the execution of that vision. So that's that's what I mean by humanity-centric innovation, if that makes sense. Yes, I think that was an incredible explanation. And again, from from the moment you, you first told me about this, it's it's I've just been able to think about so much with it. And to your point about you know, if you were to purchase a product, say like Kleenex, that that you knew every time you purchased a box, you were helping to solve a problem at the same time. I mean, Pete, I'd be purchasing hundreds of boxes of Kleenex if I knew it was helping to fix climate change, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So, but I think that's the shift that really is happening, and people are expecting more of that from. I mean, the brands that they've used for a long time, but but future products that come to the market, especially as you tend to look at you know, younger generations, you know, younger millennials and Gen Z, they're expecting more of that altruism from the products and services that they use. So I think your, your concept here of, of humanity-centric innovation and bringing all that together for that creative collision, if you will, to actually move a lot of that along, no matter what kind of brand you are, I think is absolutely genius. I, 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 I wish like, you know, if, if, if COVID wasn't happening, of course, I would, I'd try to connect you with as many people as I could to get you on stage, because I think this is such an incredible concept. Now, you you brought up briefly some of the different components of this, you know, needs of humanity, new business models, and exponential technologies. So, and 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 those all merge together to create this creative collision of innovation. Would would you be able to briefly explain each one of those and maybe their importance to the overall concept, if you can? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and before I do that, one one of the things that I'm known for asking uh, at Kimberly Clark is this question of who wants to be a billionaire. Yes. Uh, you know, because and and what I ask every all the employees, I was like, man, who wants to be a billionaire? <laughs> and 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 the, and I tell and I, I'm telling all of your listeners right now, every single person listening to this has an opportunity to be a billionaire. Mm-hmm. If we just stop defining a billionaire as somebody who accumulated a billion dollars and, and was somebody that helped a billion people. And, and that's really the focus of humanity-centric innovation is finding your massively transformative purpose of how you can positively impact 1 billion lives. That's what Singularity University talks about. And I think there's a real opportunity working for a company like Kimberly Clark, knowing that one to 2 billion people use our products every day. Right. Um, but but the thing is, is that if, if one to 2 billion people are using our products every day, that means five to 6 billion people are not using our products every day. So there's a tremendous mm-hmm. opportunity to be a billionaire and, and affect a billion lives. And, and, and the way we do that to answer your question is, is really, I think, through this idea of humanity-centric innovation. And so <clears throat> if I just break down those three things, if, if we think first, what are the needs of humanity? The one example I'll give you is gender equality. And I, and I don't know if your listeners have seen the World Economic Forum data, but the if we stay on the current trends that we're currently on as a society, it'll take almost a century to close the gender gap wow. in, on the world, right? 257 years, almost two, over 250 years to close the economic yeah. gap, you know, 100 years to close the political gap, a decade to close the educational gap. And, you know, the one thing I keep asking myself, if in the 1960s, if we could go from the earth to the moon in less than a decade, why can't we close and achieve gender equality by 2030? Exactly. And why can't, why can't we achieve racial justice by 2030? Yeah, it's, it's a bold ambition, but so was going to the moon. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I mean, if you want to change the world, all you have to do is change your mind. I mean, we're, we don't need a lot of like super <laughs> science and technology right. to yep. help us achieve gender equality. So that, so when I talk about needs, um, that's really what I'm talking about is, is things like gender equality. Um, <clears throat> and when, when I'm talking about the business models, uh, Peter Diamond is, has written a book called The Future is Faster Than You Think. And in there, he outlines the seven new business models of the 21st century. And, and I won't go through all of them, but you know, one of the ones he talks about is the crowd economy. And this is all about using underutilized assets. And you know, great example is Airbnb. I mean, they're the largest accommodator in the world, yep. bigger, bigger than Hilton. And, <laughs> and, and it they, grew so quickly. And they own no property, they own no right. you know, buildings, you know, Uber. You know, it's the world's largest taxi company. And I would venture to guess they're maybe the world's largest uh, food distributor uh, as well. And they own no vehicles, right? And so yep. that's the example of the crowd economy. Um, you know, another one I'd just talk about just briefly is the free data economy, free quote unquote. You know, we all use Google for free, but right. all that data then is used with advertisers yep. um, or Facebook. <clears throat> you know, they're the largest media provider in the world and they create no content. All of us create all the content uh, for Facebook. So the question becomes, how do you couple these needs of humanity with these new business models, whether that's the free data economy or the crowd economy, um, or the transformation economy or the smartness economy, but, but it's coupling those new business models with these needs so that we can do it, do, solve these problems in an economically viable way. Um, and then the third component is, is the technology that is gonna mm -hmm. enable all this, you know, whether that's artificial intelligence or blockchain or 3D printing um, or biotechnology or genetic sequencing. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I've, I talk about, and I think you saw this in my deck, uh, Nick, is that, you know, if you look at the economics of genetic sequencing, you know, at the beginning of the century, uh, in the year 2000, we mapped the human genome, the genome of one person. It was a person who lived in the UK because that's where the project yeah. started. But, but it took 13 years and cost $3 billion. Which is crazy to think about today <clears throat> that it costs that much money. And today you can go to 23andMe and for 125 bucks in three <laughs> <Right>? weeks. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. That chart, I mean, I still, that chart still blows me away. I mean, but, just to but, see. It, well, to go from, you know, $100 million per genome to we're probably, we're less than $1,000 a genome. We may be close to $300 a genome, but just, just imagine yeah. $100, $10, $1, a penny a genome that that is going to open a lot up personalized medicine and and um, understanding of health and wellness uh, that's beyond our imagination and you couple that with quantum computing you know yep. last september google announced quantum supremacy when they solved a problem in 200 seconds that it would have taken the fastest computer at Oak Ridge National Lab yep. 10,000 10, years 10,000 years, yeah. And that was a 54 qubit quantum computer. And IBM's just announced they're going to launch a 5,000 qubit quantum computer. Gosh. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it, it, you know, yeah. so it, it's this idea of, of coupling uh, of need of humanity, like cl taking climate action with a business model like the smartness economy coupled with quantum computing and artificial intelligence to bring all that together to create a business that makes money, but solves the problems of humanity all at the same time. That That's would, the idea of humanity-centric yeah. innovation. That would truly be the best thing ever. And, and that's why I love this so much because it's like, it, it, it captures everything. If, 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 if people were to start generating businesses around that concept, where not only, of course, the goal is profit, but the goal is for helping people at the same time. I mean, my gosh, to your point about helping a billion, you know, do you want to be a billionaire? Not about making a billion dollars, but helping a billion people while also probably making a lot of money in the process. Yeah, and it's that not is mutually a, exclusive, right? Right, exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. not at all. And I think that that mindset where, you know, for so long, we've just been focused on the money part of it, instead of, I shouldn't say that because there are a lot of a lot of companies, a lot of folks out there who who put the money they've made through very good use. But I think if we're talking, you know, on a very large scale, you know, most people just hang on to the dollar amount and not so much. Well, who are you actually helping by by doing what you're doing as well? I think that is a fundamental shift that 
that needs to happen. And I, I really hope as we head into the next decade, as, as these exponential technologies really come into their own, as these new business models continue to grow and, and as, as more needs of humanity are, are truly identified to create this creative collision, I, I really hope that shift from people's concept of being a billionaire in terms of dollars and cents to being how many people am I actually helping of course, while also making money is is the shift that we actually have and, and where that heads. So I thank you so much for for explaining all that, Pete. I, I again, I, I I still think back to that slide deck often, and and I'm glad you brought up that chart because the variance from the variance from how expensive it was to do what they did ten years ago for for gene sequencing and what you can do now with 23andMe is is just crazy. And I'm sure it's going to get cheaper. I'm sure probably the next five, 10 years is going to be a a 23andMe product out there or some other product where you can get your entire genome sequenced and analyze things that we can't even do now for probably pennies on the dollar. I'm sure that's coming. Well, you know, that's what science and technology has always done is reduce the cost of things that we thought were untouchable. You know, I'll I'll give you a great example. In 1888, the Washington Monument was built at the top of the Washington Monument is a little pyramid made of aluminum because aluminum was one of the most expensive metals in the whole world. As a matter of fact, it was on display at Tiffany's in New York before, oh they, put the, gosh. <laughs> before they put the pyramid on top oh. of the Washington Monument. So there's That's a little aluminum pyramid up there. And, and of course, within four years, you know, through electrolysis and smelting, um, you know, now aluminum is one of the cheapest metals you can purchase. Yep. You know, I mean, we, we wrap our food in it, but once upon a time, it was one of the more expensive than gold. And um, it just shows how science and technology can take something that is considered so expensive and so unreachable to be in the hands of everybody. And that's the real power of science and technology. And that's why it's important to focus on humanity-centric innovation and just trust that Moore's law is going to happen whether we exist or not. These advances are going to happen. So let's skate to where the puck's going to be rather than being limited by what technology can do today. Yes, that is... Absolutely. I see. I, I'm finding a hard time to say because I agree with you so much. Like I, I, I think you're you're exactly right with, with all that. It's it's about being future focused and and bringing these three pieces of the puzzle together to really progress all of this forward for for the benefit of everybody as opposed to the to the benefit of the few. And um, I, th- I think that's something we'll be talking about here in in a second. But before we transition into that. You know, the, the, the exponential technologies piece, of course, really interests me. So maybe a bit of a loaded question here, but if you had to choose one emerging technology, Pete, whether that be AI, blockchain, biotech, gene sequencing that you think will fundamentally, et cetera, even that you think will fundamentally change human society, what technology do you think it will be and why? Yeah, that's a good, well, that's a great question. You know, um, I'm going to start the answer in a really strange spot is um, I'm going to start 200,000 years ago. So 200,000 years ago, the humans on earth were anatomically similar to you and I. And for 130,000 years, we lived basically like animals. I mean, really no, no change in, in any of the, you know, uh, fossil record. I mean, can you imagine living in a world where the next thousand <laughs> years looks like the last thousand years for 130,000 years? Oh my gosh. No, that's how, that's how we lived, how humans lived, that we're just as smart as you and I on this planet. And then 70,000 years ago, something happened. Nobody knows exactly what. But what archaeologists will tell us is there was an explosion of art and tools and human migration. And what anthropologists will tell us is we learned to talk. We discovered Mm -hmm. speech. We invented language. And every time we've changed how we connect and communicate and collaborate as a species, our world has fundamentally changed. Whether that was learning to speak or to write or to mathematics or the printing press or telephony or the internet or the World Wide Web or 5G, every time we've changed how we connect, communicate, and collaborate as a species, our world has fundamentally changed. And I think the technology that is going to take us to the next level is artificial intelligence. I think this, this 
the, the AI, AI is, is that great enabler that is going, it, it's going to be much like when we learned to talk 70,000 years ago. The, the world of yesterday is going to look nothing like the world of tomorrow. Um, you know, that's, that's what you talk about when you think of the singularity. I mean, we had a singularity 70,000 years ago, which is, you know, a direct correlation to everything we've done up until this point. And AI becomes that new step change um, that will put us on a new trajectory as a species. And I think for, for good, uh, for, you know, I think yes. for good. Um, so if I had to choose one technology, it would be AI just because it is gonna change fundamentally how we connect, how we communicate and how we collaborate as a species. I, yes, I 100% agree. You and I are, are very much on the same page with that. And that was actually really kind of the subject of, of the TEDx talk I gave last year was, you know, I, I kind of took everybody through and almost kind of like what you just did, where we go through these different evolutions throughout humanity, where we create these different tools that help us become more efficient, save time, all this stuff. And I ended on AI being almost our final tool. And of course, there may be more tools beyond that. But relatively speaking, my theory I'm, I'm proposing here is that once we break through this next tool, that tool being AI, the only word that I can think of, and, and you've already mentioned here, is, is exponential, right? The, the amount of things that we're going to be able to do, the places we're going to be able to travel, I think it's going to be one of the fundamental components of us exploring not just Mars, but other planets in our solar system, and maybe even being able to go farther beyond that, solving problems here on Earth that we can't solve now for whatever reason. I, I just, I, I agree with you 100%. It is, it is going to be such a drastic change. I think a lot of people you know, can't even fathom the amount of change. And I look, you know, I'm, I'm 26 years old right now. And I, I often think like, what is the world going to look like when I'm, you know, when I'm 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, and maybe even longer than that, who knows if we'll come up with some way to extend life well into, you know, hundreds, hundreds by then. But I often think to myself, what is the world going to look like? And I often envision AI being everywhere. Everything. Yeah, well, oh, I, I think so. I mean, just like electricity is in the background making everything work, AI is going to be in the background making everything work better. You know, yeah. I, I, I've talked about this before, maybe not on this show, but, you know, I mean, in the 20th century, every single industry was built on oil, electricity, and steel. That yes. was the infrastructure <laughs> of the 20th century. Yep. And the 21st century, data is the new oil, AI is the new electricity, and robotics is the new steel. Oh, and that's every, such a good comparison, Pete. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> every industry is going to be built on data, AI, and robotics. Um, that is the new infrastructure for the 21st century. The, the only thing I might add is DNA, but DNA is data. And, and right. you know, at, at the end, you know, I, one of the things that I love this chart, and I, I had shared it with you earlier, is from ARK Investors. And I, I don't know if they would put it this way, but when I look at their chart, I mean, there's going to be more wealth created in the next 10 years than was created in the last 100 years. Which and, is and, nuts. <laughs> and that wealth creation is going to come from these exponential technologies we're talking about, blockchain, genomic sequencing, robotics, energy storage, and I think most importantly, artificial intelligence is going to underlie all of that. Yes, and, and actually, this is a, I'm glad you brought that up. This is a really good segue in, into something else I wanted to talk about briefly. So you just mentioned, of course, the amount of wealth that, of course, these exponential technologies are going to create over the next decade. So of, of course, you and I both have talked often about not only the wealth gap, but of course, the growing racial wealth gap that is pervasive across the US and, and really to some extent the entire world. So how do you think um, we can ensure that as this new wealth is created, it doesn't leave anyone behind as has been the trend with this growing wealth cap we've seen since the 70s and, and the industrial revolution? I, th I think this is one of the most important questions that we have to answer as a species, as a society. One of my greatest concerns is we're headed to what I'll call the great bifurcation mm -hmm. of the digital haves and the digital have-nots. And the digital haves will be very wealthy and the digital have-nots will not be wealthy. We'll have states and countries and companies that will either be digital, digital deserts or they'll become digital oases. And when, as this gap bifurcates, it's going to create a lot of social tension. And unfortunately, as a species, we've usually solved great tension by going to war. With I was just going to say that they're war. 
Yeah, and, and so we have we have to see that coming, and we have to close that gap. And I think the way we close that gap is we've got to we got to provide digital IQ to people. You know, what's the difference between data science and machine learning and deep learning and predictive analytics and artificial intelligence and natural language processing? How do people use these tools, and how do we give people real tools in their hands to solve problems? So, I mean, we can give people a smartphone and a PowerPoint and Excel. But we need to give people tools and how they do social listening and virtual product prototyping and virtual product testing um, and, you know, really understanding machine learning to optimize yep. their processes. Um, and so, you know, I, I think I think this has to happen at every level and it has to happen in our educational system. Uh, we need a we need an education system for the 21st century. And, yes. and you know, you mentioned this whole um, issue around, um, you know, the racial wealth gap and. You know, I don't know if your listeners know this, but if we were to close the racial wealth gap in the United States, it would add over $1 trillion to our mm -hmm. GDP. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity for us. Um, you know, over the last 10 years, we American companies through direct foreign investment have invested over $3.5 trillion in companies in China. Yep. Um, and every year we invest over, uh, we import over $260 billion of products and services from China. Now, I'm not saying all that money shouldn't be utilized in other countries around the right. world, but imagine if a portion of that was invested in our inner cities and we fostered black entrepreneurship yes. and we supported black startups and we created black millionaires and black billionaires that were become examples for the next generation. And we could close the race, racial wealth gap and, um, and, and actually create greater economic prosperity for all Americans um, and at the same time secure our supply chains um, so that we don't run into some of the problems that we've seen with COVID-19. I, I think that's a tremendous opportunity for us um, here, in, here in the United States and like you've said, all around the world. Absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the big fears I have as well is as these exponential technologies continue to grow, my big fear is that they will continue this this bifurcation that you talked about where we see the marginalization that's already existed for so many years continue to get worse and you know not not to point fingers in any specific companies but i think it's been very clear even in the last several months of covid what companies have become 10 times richer folks who have become 10 times richer and folks who have become 10 times poorer and you know, that, that's just this little point in time just with what we're going through with COVID. And, you know, that that can get, you know, that could be multiplied, you know, by, by tens and tens and tens and tens as a technology like AI begins to really take hold and affect everything as more and more companies move towards automation, as we get better with, with gene sequencing and being able to actually interpret the data within our DNA and honestly, to some extent, probably start manipulating that uh, to a greater degree. And I just, my, my big fear as well is that that is going to get to a point where it snaps and we're going to have all out revolution, not to be a total pessimist here, of course, right? Well, but that's what scares me. Yeah, no, and, and that's what we have to overcome. And, and I think you know this, I mean, I've been working and I've got to know Jason Fields, state yep. representative Jason Fields, uh, who represents District 11 in Milwaukee really well and consider him a friend and a brother and a um, partner in trying to close this uh, racial wealth gap in America. And one of the things that him, him and I have been working on is this idea of a rising tide lifts all boats, not just yachts. Love it. Love you it, know? love it, love it. <laughs> <laughs> I told you that from day one when you told me that. I love it. And that's exactly where we need to go. Um, we've got to, everyone has to be risen up. Um, yes. And, and not be left behind um, by this, or be afraid of this, this exponential growth that is happening. Well, that's the thing. And, and I actually did some some research. I, I'm very fascinated by the future of work and the impact that AI specifically is going to have on it. And a lot of the research that I've, I've been finding is it's, it's actually showing that it's actually more detrimental to the economy and wealth generation in the long run to continue to hang on to old outdated jobs that aren't going to matter in the new data economy or any of these new business models that you talked about. It's going to be very detrimental and it's actually going to put people at a, a greater disadvantage if we continuously try to hang on 
to older jobs and older ways of working instead of innovating and skilling people for what is to come. And I, I just, for the life of me, Pete, I'm trying to really figure out how to get that message across to folks who are so afraid about just technology to begin with. But that's some really piece of, that's a, that's a really interesting piece of information and, and research that I've been reading a lot about. And people's eyes always light up when I say that because they're like, what you mean? You, you, you want to put people out of work? And I'm like, no, I, I don't want to advocate putting people out of work. I go, but if you continuously try to hang on to old jobs and old ways of, ways of doing things that are going to get outmoded regardless because of Moore's law, you, you know, it, it's just going to be more detrimental. Yeah. Um, well, you, you know, we've seen this movie before. I mean, let, let's pretend it rather than it's 2020, it's 1920, right? It's 1920. And right at our fingertips, are these technologies that have been introduced since the end of the Civil War. Since 1865, we've seen the advent of electricity and flight and the automobile and air conditioning. It, just 15 years ago, Albert Einstein would have written his paper that laid the foundation for quantum physics, solid state physics, and the atomic bomb, <laughs> right? Right. And, and you think about the massive change that happened in the world from 1875 to 1920. Uh, you know, there's a great picture of, of Fifth Avenue in New York City that shows, uh, in one picture it says spot the car and it's just all horse and carriage. I think it's like <laughs> I think I've seen that actually, yeah. Yeah, and then just in 1913, like a decade later, it says spot the horse and carriage and you can't because it's all cars. Right. I mean, and, and that that's the kind of shift that, you know, happens so quickly. And so much like 1920, here in 2020, right at our fingertips are these technologies that have been introduced since 1965. You know, yep. nanotechnology, biotechnology, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, uh, the internet. I mean, all these technologies are right at our fingertips and the transformation that we saw from let's say 1890 to 1920, we're, we're gonna see a very similar shift here from about uh, 2020 to 2040. And, and it's gonna be one of the most incredible times to be alive and one of the most innovative times in all of human history. And, and I think it's something for us to embrace, but we also need demand, you know, just like everybody came off right. the farm and went into industry, yep. everybody's gonna go from industry into these new data-based uh, industries as well. Um, and I, I think we've got to let go of the old and grab a hold of the new, or we're gonna be left behind. Absolutely, 100% agree. So with all that being said, what are some ways that people can act now within their organizations to begin implementing this model of, of human-centric innovation, if you can give any starting points? Yeah, well, I think one of the best places to start is with the UN SDGs is, you know, look at those, understand those and understand how they track back to your business. You know, um, Philip Crosby wrote this book, I think it was in 1985, it was called Quality is Free. And at the time, it was a radical concept because everybody thought quality is expensive. And what Philip Crosby said was, hey, if you do it right the first time, quality is actually free. And, and I think sustainability is free. You know, if we, if we can create solutions with less materials, less energy, less mm -hmm. water, um, it actually starts to pay for itself. And, and I think sustainability is is the route to humanity centric innovation you know if we can do what's you know right for people and you know what's right for the planet and right for profits you know the whole triple bottom line if you can start there i think that's the pathway to humanity centric innovation but what i would tell the listeners is think really really big you know hey big human humanity-centric innovation, but start really, really small and scale fast. I think that's the secret to success. And I think too many times people get lost in all the noise. And if you can just start with something small and meaningful and have that ripple out like ripples on a pond, uh, that's where you're going to have the biggest impact. I think that's fantastic advice because I, I've even caught, I know I've fallen into that trap where, you know, you, you want to do something like this and you want to figure out how to implement it to you know, to, to help serve more people, help serve, you know, the planet and, and be more altruistic with what you're doing, but, you know, just getting so caught up in how big of a task it is when really you can just focus on very tiny aspects of that and still have a very large impact. So I think oh. that is excellent advice and starting well, small, especially with a problem that honestly, yeah. it's like, I, I don't even compare climbing Mount Everest to this problem. This is a problem of epic proportions. The easiest way to do anything is to just bite off a tiny little chunk and rock it. 
Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, sometimes we step across the person laying at the bottom of our driveway to go help somebody in Indonesia. <laughs> right. you know, it's like, help the person at the bottom of your driveway first. Yes, absolutely. That's a, that's a really good comparison. So then, Pete, as, as we kind of wind our conversation down, I, I would really like to, to leave on, on this question because I'm, I'm very curious to see what your thoughts are. So imagine you could snap your fingers and travel 10 years into the future. In 2030, how do you envision society and the world around us looking? Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know if it'll happen by 2030. I think it's going to be close. But I, I think, imagine being able to upload your neurocortex to the cloud. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I love you it. Know, I mean, think about for a minute the ability to connect your brain, you know, Elon Musk is already working on right. the Neuralink, you know, the ability to connect your brain to the cloud. And now imagine being able to connect that cloud to Starlink, um, which is the massive, you know, satellite communication system around the world, you know, coupled with artificial intelligence, where every single person has access to all knowledge on Earth. And, and we're almost there, you know, with your smartphone, you can look stuff up. But you know, imagine now being able to know everything all the time simultaneously. Well, I think the great differentiator is going to be human creativity mm. and human courage, right? If, if knowledge becomes a commodity and everybody knows everything, the great differentiator is going to be creativity. That's very in, interesting. In connecting the dots to come up with new thoughts and new ideas to progress the human race. But it, the other thing it takes is the courage to execute. Uh, creativity yep. isn't enough. Knowledge isn't enough. It really is about courage to, to execute. You know, if you think about the world before the internet, uh, Francis Bacon was right. Knowledge is power. And all of our businesses are all structured around pre-internet world where we have pyramids yep. and corner offices and hierarchy and all this stuff that is all about knowledge is power. Well, in a world where everybody knows everything, Albert Einstein is right which is imagination is more powerful than knowledge. And that's really the key to the future is imagination, creativity, and courage. Because I think in 10 years, everybody will know everything because our neurocortex will be connected to the cloud. You know, I'm, I'm actually going to agree with you on that one. It's, it's funny because there was this, um, there's a show on HBO that I really like. I think it was called Years and Years. And the whole concept of the show was they would jump like a couple years into the future with each episode. And it's funny, at the end of the season, I don't remember what year it was, but the the whole the whole series culminated into this episode where one of the family members that they were following in this show actually uploaded her her consciousness into the internet, into computing. And she came through in one of the smart speakers. It was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to it check was, that out. Yeah. It was really, it's called Years and Years. It years was and years. so cool. Um, mm. And honestly, I think with how quickly everything is moving, I don't see why we couldn't, at least maybe at that point, testing it. Something, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's this all, I, I know I keep drawing back to media, but I, I, I have this thing where I think Hollywood and media really actually can kind of predict the future in an odd way. Um, because it's that imagination, I think that actually, you know, it's the people crazy enough to dream about what could be possible and depict it on a screen. And then it actually does become possible in a weird way. But there's also this show on Amazon Prime called Upload, where the whole concept of the show is when you die, you can either die like a regular person, or you can have your consciousness uploaded into this virtual world where you live on eternally. <laughs> wow. 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 So the, I love that you brought that up because I think we're heading towards this. I really do. I yeah. absolutely 110% do. Yeah. Um, It'll be the next uh, evolution of the human uh, species, I guess. You know, I guess that's the question to ask is what, what are we evolving to? You know, I, I think sometimes we think evolution has stopped, but I think evolution is actually going to accelerate oh, yeah. through science and technology. I think we are going to figure out maybe not how to keep our physical bodies, you know, completely, what is the word I'm looking for? Eternal or everlasting. I think we're going to figure out how to make, we're going to figure out consciousness and we're going to figure that piece of it out because uh, one of my favorite books, Life 3.0, written by by Max Tegmark, who's a 
um, a very well-known physicist at MIT, he, he, he pretty much laid out the argument that we know information is substrate independent, meaning information can take many different forms, no, you know, at, at least if you look at it in a binary way. So if our intelligence, the electrical signals moving back and forth in our brain can be quantified as information and is substrate independent, why can't it be sent into the internet? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I'm reminded of uh, the E.O. Wilson quote, which is the real problem for humanity is that we have Paleolithic emotions with, yes. medi <laughs> with medieval institutions and godlike technology. Yes. And, and that's, the, that's, that's our challenge, right? Yes. Paleolithic emotions. That is that sums all that up right there. And of course, we see that playing out all over the world in so many different ways right now as we're pushing up against this, this exponential growth of technology. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Pete, I had such a blast talking with you. I know you and I could probably talk for, for hours more, <laughs> but this was a blast. I, I really enjoyed having you on the show. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Of course. And if anybody would like to reach out to you or get in touch with you, what are some of the best ways for them to go about doing so? Yeah, I mean, you can connect me with me on LinkedIn. Um, you can send me an email. Uh, I'll give you my personal email, which is peter.b.dolcamera at gmail.com. And uh, be happy to connect with anybody. And uh, if you got some ideas, I'd love to hear them. And uh, maybe we could do something cool together. Awesome. Well, Pete, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's I, I it's so much food for thought for me even came out of this. I know this is going to be an insanely valuable episode to, to everybody who listens to the podcast. So thank you so much again for taking the time. All right. Great. Hey, thanks a lot, Nick. Talk to yep. you soon. Chat All soon. Right, bye. All right. Bye. Artificial intelligence, voice recognition, machine learning, robot. You've been listening to the Artificial Podcast with your host, Nick Myers. Nick Myers. To stay up to date with all our latest episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. To learn more about how your organization can benefit by unlocking the power of AI and voice, visit www.redfox-ai.com. Until next time. <laughs>